I'm Trent England with Save Our States, where we are defending the Electoral College every day. This is another one of our Six Questions podcasts, and I'm so glad to uh, have a return customer. Jason Sneed is the Executive Director of the Honest Elections Project. No issue is more important in sustaining our republic than protecting the integrity of our elections and, and how people uh, how people view our election system. So, Jason, welcome back to the program. Well, thanks, Trent, for having me back. It's it's great to be here. Yeah, it's it's terrific to, to have you. And we'll uh, we got another six questions. So uh, let's start with the first one. We are getting closer to the elections uh, this fall. We've got some states have primaries coming up pretty soon. Uh, what what is your number one objective as we look ahead to the the fall elections? Well, my main objective is to make sure that we've got clear election rules, uh, which we stick to all the way through the process, uh, that make it easy to vote and hard to cheat, so that voters have confidence that they are the ones making decisions about who is going to represent them and lead the government, uh, not savvy lawyers who, as we know, can, can use a lot of tools and a lot of tricks to change election rules to benefit one side or the other. That's really my main objective is making sure we've got those rules in place that give voters confidence that their votes are being counted and that the elections are, are fair and accurate. And related to that, Jason, you and I had a, an op-ed that we co-wrote for Newsweek not, not too long ago. We were on their uh, podcast just recently. Why is the Electoral College important to election integrity? Well, you know, I think that the Electoral College is important for a host of reasons when we're talking about election integrity. And I'll, I'll start with a very basic one, which is, you know, what I just said, you know, about clear rules being established ahead of an election. Uh, those rules should be fair. Those rules should be impartial, not designed to benefit one side or the other or, or be changed for purely partisan objectives. Well, the Electoral College is part of our Constitution, and it is, in fact, the way that we select the president of the United States. If you change that, particularly through something like the National Popular Vote Compact, there is a very powerful argument to be made that that is not a legitimate way to change the Constitution, that this is only being done for partisan advantage. This is being done to change power dynamics in, in the country between um, you know, rural and urban areas, uh, coastal and flyover states. You know, that's kind of the dynamic there. And when you're doing that, when you're changing the way that you're selecting an office as powerful as the president, um, and you've got uh, these other problems out there that, that raise questions about why you're doing this, then you're, you're potentially casting doubt on the legitimacy in the eyes of many voters um, of the outcome of, uh, of that election and whether it is actually a credible election. So that's one reason why it's so important. And then there's a host of, of, of others that I'm sure that we can get into over the next few minutes. It helps to combat voter fraud. It helps to give uh, presidents a governing mandate um, uh, with a clear majority in the Electoral College. It helps encourage the, the building of diverse and, in, and inclusive coalitions uh, rather than uh, you know seeing what we see in a lot of parliamentary models where where coalitions fracture and you wind up getting uh, presidents or or you know majority parties depending on the system selected by smaller and smaller pluralities. Uh, so there's lots of of benefits, uh, but I really think that first one is one of the big ones. It you know, we we want to have a system that everyone thinks is is credible, that everyone uh, thinks is legitimate, and we shouldn't change that in ways that cast doubt on on the selection process for the presidency. 
Yeah, I remember years ago, I met a law professor up in Oregon at, at uh, Willamette Law School named Norman Williams, and he's written on the Electoral College, and, and he's written about the National Popular Vote Compact. And his response, and, and he's, a, he's a Democrat, he does election law work for Democrats up in the Pacific Northwest, but he had, he had said, you know, when he looked at the National Popular Vote Compact, as a savvy lawyer, you mentioned savvy lawyers uh, a, a minute ago, uh, he said that there's so many there's so many ways that you could try to take it apart, manipulate it, and you know I, I mean to his credit, right? He's a partisan. He's an attorney. Um, he works in this space. He's also an academic, uh, but he completely agreed with you. I mean, you need a system that's reliable that is not so easily manipulated by attorneys. Uh, so yeah, I, I totally agree with that, and and it's good to see that there's people you know even on the other side of the the uh, political spectrum who recognize these same problems with the MPB compact. Uh, question number three uh, for, for Jason Sneed here, the executive director of the Honest Elections Project. Um, after the 2020 election, a lot of states have changed their election laws, trying to tighten up some of the problems that people observed, not just in 2020, but in, in a lot of our uh, previous elections. Jason, are you happy with the progress that has been made uh, since that time? I am. I, I think that we have seen over the last year a tremendous amount of energy and effort poured into this space, really unlike anything that I've ever seen before. Um, it, uh, across the country, you've seen states uh, taking some fairly significant steps towards uh, serious reforms that take the slack out of voting laws, bring greater transparency, better security, and, and these are very popular measures as well. Things like uh, photo identification laws or, or voter ID for, for mail ballots. These are, are 70 or 80% issues. Uh, the left often attacks these, but the, the vast majority of Americans support and in fact demand that these laws be put in place so that they can have confidence. So I am, I am very happy to see this much energy, this much enthusiasm. I'm very happy to see states coming back uh, this year, you know, some states like Florida passed reforms in, in 2021, and now they're back again in 2022 with still more, which I think is a, is, is a tremendously important um, message to send that we are not just going to, to treat this as a one and done shiny object. This is a serious thing. We have to make sure that we've got an election system that works and that delivers clear, accurate and prompt results. And, uh, and there's always room for improvement, right? We should always be looking at what other states are doing, borrowing what works, avoiding what doesn't, and, and trying to make sure that we've got the best system possible. So, you know, to, to kind of sum up this, this answer here, I do think that more work remains to be done, though. Um, we are very much along the lines of that iterative process. Uh, we want to keep states engaged. We want to make sure that this is just an annual thing, right? That we, we do not walk away or forget that, um, uh, that election integrity is an important issue, that we're always devoting energy and always focusing some degree on that. There will be other issues, obviously, um, uh, but, uh, but we want to make sure that this doesn't get punted to next year or the year after, and then eventually becomes a, a, a thing that just gets forgotten about. Um, and then if I, if I can, I just want to add one more thing to the last question yes. really quickly too, which is, you know, I, I, I'm always glad to see uh, folks on, on the left and the right when we can find that common ground and recognize that, you know, that's that's a bridge too far, this particular policy or that. And, and it can happen on the right and the left. Right. Um, uh, but one thing that we always have to remember is that elections depend on the consent of the losers. 
And so when I, I hear stories like what you just 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 said about the professor who who points out all the problems with NPV, um, I, I can't help but be reminded of that saying, right? You have to be able to convince the loser that the process was fair and that they should come back next time and try again. If you show them that the process isn't or make them think that the process isn't, then they're gonna check out or worse, right? And that that is, a, a I think, a, a death spiral in democracy that we want to avoid at all costs, not just with MPV, but with everything we do in the election integrity space. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And that's actually, Jason, it's a really good lead into my next question because it's about this, this term democracy that gets thrown around in all kinds of really strange, from my perspective, really strange ways as this sort of, you know, almost like metaphysical, but very malleable label for whatever certain people want in terms of a process, in terms of an outcome. And, uh, and from my perspective, it seems like they are sometimes using that really as a way to delegitimize the processes that we have to try to force, you know, force change to something else that's, uh, you know, that, that's oftentimes, I think, you know, untried and, and, uh, and very risky. But, you know, the, the Washington Post slogan, democracy dies in darkness, right? This term democracy is used in all kinds of ways. Oftentimes, it's used to try to stifle debate, to eliminate free speech. I mean, what what do you think about that whole debate and that use of the term democracy as a kind of way to uh, way for people to just sort of get what they want by waving around or redefining this word? Yeah, I think that this is a really troubling dynamic that we see, and and it really only happens on on the left, right? I mean, that's that's who's who's really using this. There's been a very startling uh, shift in 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 rhetoric on on the left over the last year or so, to the point now where you know, and I, I'm not you know I'm not making this up. They're literally saying that democracy and Democrat mean the same thing. And so what's what's good for, say, the Democratic Party is good for democracy and vice versa. Um, I think that's so startling because, you know, first of all, I, I do have to chuckle at the sort of one party defense of democracy argument. Right. That uh, that if you don't vote for us, you're voting uh, against democracy itself, which is typically not something that, you know, true small D Democrats say. Um, uh, but I do think that this term does get used as sort of a, a loose catch-all for anything that the particularly progressive left wants. And if there is a structure, if there is a system, if there is an institution that stands between them and, and what they perceive to be the majority democratic will, um, then they start to try to discredit and delegitimize that system. And, and we've seen that in so many contexts, right? The um, the, the effort against the Electoral College, uh, the Electoral College is, is described as anti-democratic. Um, the United States Senate is described as an anti-democratic institution. The filibuster in the Senate is described as anti-democratic. And of course, we just saw a, a concerted effort to try to get rid of the filibuster so that the, the bare 50 plus one rule will apply in the Senate and, and allow a whole host of measures to pass without having to win consensus. And, and that is really the, the risk, I think, when we treat institutions and systems and, and structures that are designed to deliver more than democracy um, uh, as something which is antithetical to the American system of government or antithetical to the will of the people. Um, you lose a lot of the, the advantages. The, um, the advantage being you know, building consensus, persuading people to, to your cause. 
um, you know, delivering in, enduring uh, change, not just bare partisan change. Uh, we we got into this, you know, Trent, you and I on the Newsweek um, uh, podcast mm-hmm. just recently. How do you uh, amend the Constitution? Well, you've got to get two thirds um, uh, support in Congress and three fourths of the state. That's a very heavy uh, burden to, to, to meet. Uh, but there is a reason for that. It's because you want to actually, if you're going to enshrine something in the Constitution, you want more than just you know 50.1% public support. Um, that is a process that is deliberately difficult because it's designed to deliver more than just whatever the immediate um, uh, interests of the, the bare majority are. And that's how you actually deliver something which is going to last. So I think we, we do see this term getting thrown around, attacking those institutions because they stand in the way of these very short-term, very partisan gains. And if we get rid of them, uh, then I think we we do a, a lot of long-term damage to the entire system um, uh, uh, of government here in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah, it just seems so short-sighted that people don't understand the importance of process and rules and consensus building. And uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, I, I think it, it should be alarming to Americans that that so much of the, that has, has come into our political discourse where people just talk as if it's, you know, as if uh, checks and balances and all these things that are part of the kind of the hallmarks of the American constitutional system are somehow illegitimate because people don't get what they want. Uh, another question. Yeah, on, that's, on, that, that's absolutely, yeah. that's absolutely right. You know, the, the process does matter. Um, uh, process actually matters I would argue more in, in most cases than the outcome, right? Because, you know, it, it, we can get into a political ping pong dynamic where one side uh, has the levers of power in Washington and always gets what they want. But I think the country suffers uh, if we adopt that, you know, ends justify the means. So we're going to throw the process out and just reverse the last administration's policies and go 180 degrees in the other direction and vice versa. The process is really, really important for getting that public buy-in and making sure that we've got consistent policies that can stick and, 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 and show that what we're actually being governed by, the laws and the regulations and the rules um, of society are legitimate and that even political minorities have a say in the process and their interests aren't just gonna get steamrolled. Yeah, that's right. And that's, I mean, it's, it's been fascinating this debate about the National Popular Vote Compact. Some of the folks on the other side complain that, uh, and the, the example that always sticks in my mind, we've, we've written about this at Save Our States, they complained that um, lobstermen in Maine, people who, who fish for lobsters commercially in Maine, which is a group of only about 2,000 people, got some attention from the Trump administration uh, because there was some agricultural issue and uh, the Trump administration uh, included the lobstermen where they hadn't been included before. And the, the National Popular Vote Lobby has pointed this out and said, look, this is the, tr- the Trump administration trying to, you know, win political points in in the main second congressional district to try to win that one electoral vote because of how Maine uh, splits up their electoral votes. And they saw that as a flaw, which was fascinating to me. I mean, you have, I'm not even sure their story about it is correct, but even assuming it is, you have a political system that means that people living in rural Maine uh, fishing for lobsters have a little bit more of a voice than they would otherwise have. I mean, <laughs> how is that a flaw? How is that a failure of the constitutional system? It's exactly what the founders wanted to happen. Yeah, I, I agree with that 100%. Um, we, we very much have a system which is designed to protect 
the rights and, and interests of individuals, right? I mean, versus uh, versus sometimes collective interests. And, and, and I mean, I don't think for, for what it's worth, I don't think we want to live in a society that says whatever 50.1% want, they get, right? I don't think we want to live in that kind of, uh, uh, of society. I think that most people do believe that there are inalienable human rights, for instance, that can't be taken away from you or deprived by um, by a, a simple political majority. And I do love that even in a country of over 300 million people spread across a continent, um, that, that these main fishermen can get the attention of, uh, of, of the federal government and actually have their interests heard. I mean, we do have a right to a redress of grievances. Um, and, uh, and stuff like this just shows that uh, that, that does still work. So I, I very much agree with you. I think that's a sign that the system is functioning the way it should. So I'm Trent England talking with Jason Sneed here on our Six Questions podcast. Jason is the executive director of the Honest Elections Project. Um, Jason, give everybody your URL before we go to our penultimate question. Sure. So we're online, honestelections.org. And we're also active on Twitter and Facebook under the handle at Honest Elections. And uh, I'm sure that everyone is is waiting to see what Elon's going to do with Twitter, but I'm I'm excited. So uh, so keep checking us out there. We'll we'll see what this brave new world is going to look like. Well, that's that's my next question. I mean, we were talking a little bit about freedom of speech. Uh, what do you what do you think? I mean, you're out there on Twitter. You're active on Twitter. Uh, I mean, is this a beginning of a sort of reversal? I mean, Twitter had become a pretty hostile place for conservatives, uh, partly because of, I think, the corporate policies, partly because the corporate policies sort of fostered an environment where people on the left could say whatever they wanted and people on the right uh, ran the constant risk of being, you know, shadow banned or actually banned. Uh, for questioning things like, you know, COVID policies or elections policies or whatever. What do you, what do you think about this whole like Elon Musk purchasing Twitter? Well, I, uh, I've been watching with bated breath as the negotiations were going on. You know, it's one of these stories that really shouldn't be as big um, uh, as, as it is. Right. But, uh, but it's still fun to watch. I do think that this is probably an inflection point though. Um, I think that it's, it's undeniable that there will be change um, made to Twitter. I'm curious what other platforms will uh, will do uh, to respond. I'm, I'm curious um, how things are going to look on Twitter. I, I'm very glad to see the issue of free speech being elevated in our in our society. Um, and I've been particularly um, disturbed, I think, by the response of the left, right, which is um, very much to suddenly embrace all of the theories, all of the things that you know you just walked through about. Twitter having the ability to uh, to ban or shadow ban people uh, to block content. You know, the left repeatedly made took the position. Oh, that's not possible. You guys are uh, are, are 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 taking uh, this this idea too far. You know, go suck a lemon. It's a private company. Whatever it is. But then the second that someone comes in who isn't of the left, um, suddenly they're worried about the ability of a single company to control speech. They're worried about being banned. They're worried about free speech. Um, so I think that that kind of reveals their own um, uh, biases here, and the fact I think that they just sort of made an assumption, whether it's true or not. I, I don't know that you know the the corporate black box that is Twitter is very difficult to uh, to, to pierce and see through, right? But um, uh, you know there there was an assumption I think amongst particularly progressive elites that this probably was happening, but it's happening against 
you know, the conservatives. It's happening by people who think the way we do. Um, and it's being done to protect society and make sure that society is kind of trending in one direction or the other. So I think they've sort of admitted their own bias there, their own assumptions. But I'm really curious to see what is going to happen um, uh, when free speech is unleashed on Twitter. Uh, and we'll uh, we'll all see how this experiment uh, uh, ends, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Like I said, follow us on Twitter and we'll all uh, we'll all see it together. <laughs> That's right. So, Jason, our, our last question is always the same. So, uh, you know, you've already answered this, but I'll give you, you I'll give you a choice. You can either answer the, the question we always ask at the end, which is who is your favorite founding father and why or or uh, who is your favorite president? And you could kind of leave out the founders if you want to and, you know, answer uh, among the more modern presidents or or whatever you want. We'll, we'll give you some uh, some leeway here. Who's your favorite president and why? So what which question do you choose? Yeah, so um, so my favorite president is uh, is is Abe Lincoln. Um, you probably get that one a lot. Uh, he's he's a pretty popular guy. But um, uh, you know, we we sort of start out when we're we're kids in in school, and and he's basically like the marble version of mm-hmm. of Abraham Lincoln, right? You know, never never tells a lie, anything like that. But yeah. really, um, at the more the more you learn about him and his life and the struggles um, that he had, you know, literally dirt poor to the presidency in a single lifetime, um, it, the more impressive he becomes. And particularly his ability, I think, to, you know, engage in the political process, to use the political process, to use his oratorical skills and, and his ability to construct, you know, incredible airtight arguments, um, to, to use that whole system um, to end slavery save the union and sort of redefine what, you know, being the, uh, the United States is all at the same time. It takes an incredible, incredible person um, to, uh, to be engaged in that process and to be able to accomplish what he did and not to get lost in the politics, which is also something that happens to so many people. They just get sucked into the petty fights. They get sucked into the politics or it becomes all about personal aggrandizement. Um, yeah. You know, Lincoln was very much the opposite of that and managed, like I said, to become a moral figure while also being a politician and showing us kind of what I think we want to see in more politicians today. So that's why um, that's why I, I choose Lincoln. And sorry to wax uh, poetic there a little bit. No, about that's, it, but, uh, you know, that's great. Incredible, I mean, incredible figure. He isn't he. He's so just to build on what you said. He's he, he was so so patient. It, it seems like so much of his statesmanship to me, and maybe this is just because I'm, I'm an impatient person. <laughs> so I'm, e- I'm easily impressed by people who are patient, but I mean, Lincoln's ability to deal with other people and to put up with, uh, you know, to, to put up with their, uh, their resistance to him, the political chicanery that he had to deal with, you know, all, I mean, from being in, in Congress to, uh, running for Senate and then, you know, being president and dealing with his various lackluster, you know, and sometimes openly insubordinate generals. It's just, it's wild to me because I think, I think oftentimes people looking at politicians really value the politician who strikes out, who does something fast and who's always responding. And Lincoln certainly was not that kind of a figure but he just gradually through his own, you know, willingness to put up with things and sort of, you know, 
his, his, the power, the force of his character, he was able to be the last man standing, whether it was at the 1860 convention or in the Civil War. Uh, yeah, it, just such a remarkable figure. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, you know, the, the words that he crafted in, in so many of his speeches, particularly Gettysburg Address, which I've actually got hanging on my, my wall here. It's just it, he was able to, in, you know, a couple of hundred words, capture what the whole struggle of the Civil War was about and, and what really the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the very concept of the American Union is all about. It's, it's about government of, by, and, and for the people. So, uh, you know, you, you just think of um, the presidents that we could have had at that moment of, of national division. And, uh, and we ended up with Lincoln, who no one wanted, but then at the end of his presidency, everyone recognized was the greatest president that we've, we've ever had. So yeah. there you go. Well, Jason Sneed, uh, Executive Director of the Honest Elections Project, one more time, share with people how they can connect with the really important work that you do. Uh, so uh, honestelections.org is our website. We put everything that we do up there and then uh, Twitter and, and Facebook at Honest Elections. Um, and like I said, I'll see everyone on Twitter and we'll see what, what's coming down the road. Outstanding. Jason, thank you so much. Thanks to all of you for watching our Six Questions podcast. Thanks for being a part of Save Our States, where we are defending the Electoral College every day, educating lawmakers and the public about why we are a federal republic and why that's so important to our liberty. Um, you can check us out on Facebook, on Twitter, at saveourstates.com. Thank you one more time to, uh, to Jason Sneed, and we'll see you next time.